This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of I Want to Matter. Your life is too short and too precious to waste. Written and narrated by New York Times bestseller Kathy Lee Gifford. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pastor Mike, Dynamic Voices for Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Burns Clan. Follow at your own risk. And I am joined by a special guest today. But before we even get into that, let me just say you all have been amazing this year. You are phenomenal. We're breaking downloads records. So thank you so much for your support. And I want to give you the opportunity to support us in an additional way. You can do so by going to Patreon. Now, what is Patreon? It is basically group crowdfunding over a monthly basis. If you enjoy this content here at Pass the Mic, you can support us. Just a dollar an episode or $5 an episode would be transformative for what we're able to do. We're able to bring you better content. We're able to get better equipment. We're able to add to our team. And we're also going to give you some special perks. As you might have seen if you follow me on social media, we are starting to video record our interviews. And we have some awesome interviews coming up with people like Dr. Anthea Butler and some other names that I'm going to save and share some pictures of in the coming weeks. But I want to encourage you to go to patreon.com forward slash pass the mic and support the crucial work that is being done here. Jamar, Bo, and I would appreciate it so, so much if you were able to just give a dollar an episode or more, and we'll give you some awesome perks as well, some hangouts, and also some video episodes of our podcast. Well, today we are featuring an interview that I was able to do with one of my friends, Danielle Koch. You might have heard of her on Instagram under the handle at OhHappyDanny. And Danielle Koch is a designer turned illustrator and social justice advocate who seeks to encourage faith, inspire justice, and guide you through loving your neighbor well. She's passionate about helping everyday people find and use their passions to make a difference in their spheres of influence. And Danielle has next. I'm telling y'all, she's awesome. And she is doing phenomenal work in the illustration and design space, helping people to understand why social justice matters and why it matters for us to care about and love our neighbor for the glory of God. This was a great conversation. I think you're going to learn a lot. And I think you're also going to be inspired. We actually ended up talking about Leave Loud and weren't even intending to. And this is a great conversation that I think you're really going to enjoy. So sit back and relax and listen to this interview that I was able to do with my friend, Danielle Koch, right here on Pass the Mic. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Thank you. 
Well, Danny, thank you for joining us here on Pass the Mic. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, people don't know, but I met you recently and I was blown away by your passion for justice, the incredible work you're doing, that you're young, that you're growing into who God has called you to be, your full self. And I wanted to know, where did it start for you? you know, have you always been involved with and concerned you know, with justice and equity and making sure that people know about those causes? Or was this something more recent for you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I always love to start answering this by talking about my faith journey a little bit because it played a huge, huge role in this. Um, I was born and raised in the Apostolic Pentecostal denomination. Mm -hmm. And um, Mm -hmm. I grew up in the UPCI, the United Pentecostal Church. And so- Wow, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So as you already know, a lot of legalism, a lot of workspace theology, a lot of things that are just, I've known now, are we're not it, just not it. Mm-hmm. And so throughout that journey of growing up in that space and also living and growing up in a predominantly white neighborhood and school, I, although my church was predominantly black, we were part of an, institu- an institution, sorry, that was predominantly white. Yeah. And so Ooh. even- as I were going throughout high school and interacting with different churches and at different events, I just knew that we were looked at, treated, seen completely differently. Um, and that went along with all of the experiences I had during school and just growing up, like I said, in the neighborhood that I did. And so there was one point in high school where I got some of my Black friends together. It was like 10 of us from different churches within the denomination in Georgia. And I was like, hey, we got to talk about race. I know things feel weird for y'all. Yeah. This is Uh, in high school. High school, yes. And I have only told this story on a podcast one other time. Okay, yeah. You got to give us a tea. We need the tea on this. Come on. Yes. It just feels right to be able to share this here. But I got my friends together and I was like, guys, we, we've got to talk about this. I really feel like we can make an impact. And I actually was a senior um, heading into Georgia State University. And so it wasn't until fall that we actually got an opportunity to get together and do this. And so I got a room at my college and we all got together. We made this documentary and we went in. We talked about uh, how the standards of beauty were very Eurocentric and we felt like because one of the rules was we couldn't cut our hair. So I was like, as black women, we feel like since our hair is naturally not going to be that long in comparison to yours at first glance, it can feel to us that we don't live up to the standard of beauty that is um, always talked about in these circles. And so we got very granular and very specific. And we put that thing out there and they were not, I mean, not having it. (laughs) Wow. I mean, not having it at all. Hmm. We we were going to do round two of this recording. Pastors were pulling their kids out. They were like, not my church. We're not getting dragged. We're not going to oh, get the man. superintendent here in, the, here in this. And oh yeah, it was, it was wild. And so it eventually fell apart, but it, it definitely caused a ripple effect for a lot of other Black people who felt that they weren't heard or seen or valued or cared for in that space. And- it took me realizing that racism was a symptom of a much larger problem within that organization, and it led me eventually to leave. But I quickly wow. found out, especially in college, that it's everywhere. The issue is everywhere. 
Okay, then, there, this is this is unbelievable. So this is, yeah. this, you know, I did not know this story. So this is blowing my mind. Yeah. And so this school that you were attending was a Christian school. No, actually, the school itself oh, okay. was not a Christian school. I was very active in church and ministry. I actually wasn't allowed to go off to school, not by my parents, but by my pastor. Um, wow. So I went to Georgia State University, actually, and um, commuted all the way to my small town in Georgia for four years. Wow. So this is very uh, controlling. <laughs> you know, this is very, oh, absolutely. This, is, this is, I mean, th- this is suppression and controlling and silencing and yes. all these things that now you're also having to deal with. And we're going to get to that in a second, but mm-hmm. I'm just blown away. So you got your friends together. You all recorded this documentary. Mm-hmm. And you I felt still have like you link, were, probably. Oh, you do? Okay. You, I you got to shoot me that link uh, privately. You got to shoot me that privately. link. Privately. Yes. <laughs> I'm not trying to get nobody you know, in trouble right. or whatever, but I was just saying, right. I need to see that. So so you're navigating all of this. Yes. What is, was there a theological foundation that you felt, oh, we have to talk about race? Or it was just, hey, this is a problem because I can intrinsically tell we're not treated the same. It's not mm-hmm. equity. It's not justice. What led you and motivated you to do that? Right. Well, being part of a denomination that claimed to so highly value God in his fullness and really made a point to talk about how Jesus saves and we're called to make disciples. And it just seemed as though In church, that value was upheld, but outside of those four walls, it felt like my faith didn't have any wings. It didn't have Mm. any legs. It wasn't going anywhere or doing anything other than trying our best to stick to those rules until Sunday came and we could cry and repent for the fact that we couldn't adhere to them (laughs) as if that's how we were created to live. Mm. So experiencing that and having my own inner reckoning with what my own personal faith and salvation meant to me, I sat with God. And before all of that even happened, actually, I think it was after all of that happened. I think it pushed me towards God even more, that entire experience. Hmm. And I was becoming so discontent with that environment, with that faith, honestly. And I talked to God, I said, so I know you're real. So this isn't that kind of conversation. You don't have to prove your existence to me. But what I do need is you to reveal that there is more to this Christian faith and walk than this, because what I'm seeing is so heavily based on works, yet the faith that is saving us to go out and do good work, I'm not seeing that side of it. So I'm just so Mm. confused. So I just took it to God. And what I wasn't expecting was to have my entire world flipped upside down. I I started in the book of Romans, actually just wanting to read word for word and just really figure out this faith thing. And I saw grace and mercy, words that I honestly don't think I heard much Mm. in my whole upbringing in the church system. And I had beautiful parents and beautiful family who have walked through me so graciously and uh, walked with me so graciously and faithfully through this entire process. So this is n- definitely more about the church than it is about my own family and personal upbringing. But even so, things I, I just did not know about and hear about in church, I, God was revealing to me through his written word. And so I began to value that word of God so much. And it transformed yeah, yeah. everything around me. Like It just transformed my whole entire life because... I was filled with that unconditional love that I longed to feel 
And I was filled with it because I was getting to know him through his word and he was revealing himself to me in such beautiful ways that I honestly felt like I was limiting before because of what I was adhering to. After that moment, I was filled with such a wild, big love for my neighbor that kind of just flew, like flowed through me because of that interaction, encounter, I should say, that I had with God. And ever since then, I was like, oh yeah, I'm living this thing out. I'm loving everyone holistically and injustice just cannot be a part of this. Like I have to weed it out. I have to find a way to fight for it with my whole life because that is how I felt living love out loud was supposed to look like. Wow. So it, what I love about what you're saying though, is that, you know, the, the stereotypical language, especially when you start talking about justice in very conservative, theological, controlling circles is that the more you talk about justice and grace and mercy and ethics and loving your neighbor and centering yourself on that, the further away you'll get from caring about God and caring about truth. And what I'm hearing from you is that this deepened your faith. So the yeah. push for you know talking about this from a perspective of justice and injustice it actually caused you to see God in a in a deeper light, in a new light, in a more holistic way. Yes. And I think that happened because when I was faced with all of the the things that were coming against me as a result of me trying to pursue justice in within that limited scope, I ran towards God because I didn't think that I ever had a chance to really know him. So I never, I, I, because I never gave myself or God that opportunity for us to have like a real relationship, I didn't want to discount it and throw away that opportunity before I ever gave it a chance. So I said, you know, this is really horrible and really hard, but I'm going to try running to you first and, and seeing how that works out before I try running in any other direction. Yeah. Wow. And so it was in doing that, that he was just like, oh, you're coming to me? Well, cool. Like, watch me change <laughs> yes. your whole life. And that's what he did. And so even ever since then, I have always been having these conversations, you know, with my friends and in other social and community um, environments. And even in my journey of trying to find a church, I had a couple churches here and there that I was a part of, but my faith has just really helped me navigate these topics. And so when last year happened, I saw God take it and use it in a way that I never, ever would have expected. So, Yeah. And before we get to last year, because that is such a big part of your journey. And I don't think people, people who don't know you don't know how big of a reach and a platform you have. But before even all of that, you talked about everything that was happening to you based upon what you were saying. Mm -hmm. What was that like? Because you eventually said that you left and yes. you had to get away from that space. And I'm glad that you did. But what was happening in the midst of that space? Right. Were, were there conversations? It seems as though your pastor was telling you, giving you instructions on where to go to school. I mean, all these other things, <laughs> commandments yes. on where to go to school, yeah. what to do here and there. What was that like? And you know, as much as you're, you're comfortable, Sharon, don't want to re-traumatize, but what was... What was the essence of the pushback? Right. That's a fantastic question because I haven't really ever talked about this part. No one's really gotten there, which is fine. I'm so open to do doing that. But 
So I myself have always been, as you can probably imagine, quite inquisitive. And I ask a lot of questions and I want answers often. And so, like I said, even in early high school days, I was getting super involved in ministry uh, and got involved in many different areas like worship and leading choir and all that. But at the same time, I'd sit in Sunday school, I'd sit in Bible study, and God has so graciously gifted me with a certain level of intelligence, right? So I'm sitting in these environments and I'll hear things and I'm like, well, that don't sound quite right, you know? So I would, every once in a while, ask questions. I, I literally would go to my pastor and with his open door policy and I'd sit in there and I'd say, hey, so you guys talked about this, but in the Bible, when I was reading, I didn't really see how that worked. And mm. that would cause me to get labeled as an airhead. Like I, he, my pastor was extremely, wow. extremely spiritually abusive, extremely. Um, so I mm. was belittled con- constantly in the area of my intelligence. So I, it was very hard for me to figure out, am I just a problem, uh, like causing problems? Am I just someone who is just trying to poke holes in everything because that's what I'm beginning to be labeled as like a troublemaker when all I want are answers. I just want to be told what's right. Mm -hmm. And so I was already labeled a troublemaker. So the troublemaker is now rallying up her friends to, to put these things together and have these talks and put out this content. So my pastor with like with gritted teeth allowed me to do so, but at the same time, it was still, very difficult for me to make any waves in that area. Even when I was passionate about starting certain ministries, like it would be like a, mm, I don't know if we're comfortable with you leading like the girls mm-hmm. ministry because we don't want you infecting their minds with all of this radical, whatever's going on with you. Mm-hmm. So being consistently pushed to the sidelines in those areas just made me less and less interested in being a part of that kind of system. And then even events that were outside of my church where I'd go and I'd be so heavily involved, I still always felt like I was just <laughs> being labeled as the troublemaker everywhere I went, you know? And so after a while, it's like, I need to figure out if there's something wrong with me or if there's something wrong with this. So that's what caused me to really chase after God and be like, hey, help me. And it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my entire life. And I lost everybody and everything except mm my parents and my little brother. I lost Mm. everything. So I had to completely rebuild my life from scratch. And so I'm very thankful that God was there to guide me through all of that. Wow. So, and and I think it's important to say this or or to confirm this, but from what I'm hearing, your pastor was black. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So your pastor was black. Yes. But the the denomination that you were part of was majority white. Yes. And I think it's really important for us to name that number one, because I think a lot of our listeners have experienced spiritual abuse and control and you know toxic environments mm-hmm. when there has been a black pastor. I think that is important to name. Mm-hmm. But then I think also naming the fact that you as a young woman were being controlled by an older black man, right? Like there was, there's also Mm -hmm. that as well. Um, That's at play. And so I just really want to hold space for that because that is courageous for you to share what you've been through and your Mm -hmm. journey. And I know a lot of people will resonate with that. So 
I just want to say thank you for sharing that with us. I didn't even expect for any of this to have to be shared. <laughs> he was like, so what? I this just is- want to hold space. I just really want to hold space for that and say um, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, thank you for creating that space for me to feel safe sharing that. I really, I'm glad we went there. <laughs> yes, yes. Oh my goodness. So in the midst of all of this, so I met you and the when I met you, it's funny, one of my friends actually told me about you because y'all were having a conversation and he was bringing you on to his podcast. And so I was like, oh, cool. Yeah. He's like, he's like, do you know her? And I was like, I don't think so. And so I look you up on Instagram, right? He's like, oh yeah, go mm-hmm. go look her up on Instagram. And I see you have a lot of followers. I was like, <laughs> oh, and then I saw the illustrations that you do and the artwork and how vivid it is and how beautiful it is and how eye-catching it is. And so this illustration gift that you have, this creative gift, because you said earlier that you did a documentary, so there's clearly a creative bent here. (laughs) Did you always have this illustration gift and this graphic design gift, or was that something that you developed later on? Mm -hmm. Was it college? What was the origin of that? Right. So thank you so much, by the way, for your kind words. I have always been someone who wanted to use my hands. I've always been drawing and painting and just creative all throughout my childhood. And I thought I was going to pursue art, but I had a a teacher that kind of swayed me in a different direction, unfortunately. But I ended up resolving that I was going to be an event planner. So I went to school at Georgia State to major in business and minor um, Mm -hmm. with a concentration in hospitality so I could go into event planning. And Along that time, I was still really enjoying graphic design. And so I would design logos for friends and flyers and stuff just for fun. And once I graduated, the event planning agency that I wanted to work at had a marketing and graphic design opening. So Hmm. I was like, ha, that's my way in. (laughs) And so I got the job right out of college and went in with that and ended up falling completely in love with graphic design and finding out quickly that event planning was not my calling. My ministry, not created for that, needed to leave it alone. (laughs) But it was at my job actually where I got completely fired up in a completely different way for the cause of justice and equity and inclusion. And I took it very, very seriously to the point where I wanted to make it part of my life's mission to pursue justice in that way. Uh, So that's kind of how I got there. And Mm -hmm. my whole experience with my job and eventually quitting that job, which was once again, a predominantly white space, really propelled me into the work that I do now. Okay. So what happened on the job? Like, What was the thing about the job that really stoked that fire? Because I'm, I'm hearing that's an inflection point and an important moment in your journey. Yes. Because it was a predominantly white space, I noticed that me being the only black woman working there, there were just things that were said and things that were done naturally that I found offensive or found that I was being left out of or wasn't taken seriously. So being the troublemaker that I am, I went to my boss (laughs) and and I said, hey, can we sit down? I'd really love to talk kind of about my experience here and ask some questions. And so we met up and I sat with them and, and talked. And I said, I know we're small business and I know we're still growing and everything like that, but it's really important to me to be a part of a company that fosters an inclusive atmosphere. And while 
you guys picked me for being a culture fit, I really feel like we have some work to do on how we define culture and how we make space mm. for diversity, equity, and inclusion here. So have you ever considered maybe us doing a training or a seminar, bringing in a speaker, anything of that nature for the company? And this man said to me, he said, um, no, that's actually never interest, interested me. I don't really have hmm. a passion for that. Wow. And don't really see myself putting like company money towards that. Uh, so, my mama. Hmm. No. <laughs> my mama. Wild, right? So wow. I sat there just completely shocked, just nodding along like, yeah, yeah, okay. And it was from that moment on that I realized not only was there not a place for me at this company, because I already figured that out, but I can't, I have to be a part of the solution here. There, there are Black women, Black men across the country dealing with the same exact thing. And the countless microaggressions I experienced, outright racism and ignorance, honestly, in a lot of other instances as well, I just, it really just riled me up. And I didn't know all the verbiage, all the lingo. I had never myself done any inclusion trainings or anything like that, but I just knew as a Black woman in America, my voice needed to be heard. And I'm not an airhead. I'm not a troublemaker. I have a voice. My voice matters. And I'm going to use it to make some kind of change within my small circle. So, yeah. Wow. So that is, and I think so many of us will be able to resonate with that, you know, having conversations of, you know, with people on a, a daily, weekly basis, you know, whether it's in the context of my church or outside of it, that, you know, they say, hey, we're dealing with this. This is what's happening. And when we bring it up, people say, it's not interesting us. You know, we're not going to put money towards it. It's yeah. not that big of a deal. Um, and even now, so this is not too long ago when you experienced this. Right. And even now the climate, you know, on in a public way has changed with what companies are willing to say and talk about. But that doesn't necessarily always translate into different conditions for workers and human beings, you mm -hmm. know, in their own company. Right. And so it really brings me to now because over the past year or so, your platform has exploded. Right. And when did that start? What what, what happened yeah. that made the platform just blow up? Because I, I heard you talking about this in a, in a forum we were on. And mm -hmm. I said, that is interesting and fascinating to hear how you just putting up a couple of posts then turned into this huge influence that you have now. Right. Exactly. When I left that job, I decided to run with the graphic design, marketing, and social media type of thing and started my own agency. And it existed to help positive mission-based brands use social media for maximum impact. So I wanted to get these mission-based brands these people who cared about justice and really were doing the work on the ground, I wanted to get them in the light online. And so I was like, that's how I'm going to give back. And that's how I'm going to mm -hmm. make this a mission for my life. So I started working with organizations and I had awesome opportunities to design for Be The Bridge. And I did a talk for NAACP and just wow. random doors were opening <laughs> that I was not expecting. And it made me feel like I was heading in the right direction. And so this was all, everything that I'm talking about right now, from the conversation with the boss, to me quitting my job and starting my own business, to me getting an iPad and drawing for the first time was all 2019. So mm. I was 23 years old. I'm currently 25. This was all uh, 2019. So I 
got my iPad and started illustrating for fun. And then in January of 2020, I knew that Martin Luther King Jr. Day was rolling around and I wanted to draw something that kind of spoke to his legacy because to be honest, I felt like causing some good trouble and talking about how <laughs> yes, yes. how I felt like his legacy had been watered down over time. And people were painting him as this passive peacemaker when he was a radical disruptor, challenged mm-hmm. the status quo, mm-hmm. encouraged civil disobedience. Like this man was wild. So I said, you know, illustration is kind of cute here on Instagram. I don't see too many black girls doing it, but I'm going to just jump in and, and make a cute little illustration talking about this for my maybe what 700 friends and family because mm-hmm. again i just wanted to impact my circle right so right. i made that and it was the first illustration that people were sharing that i didn't know and i was like oh my gosh i didn't even know people could find my work uh that didn't know me even though i did social media for a living you'd think that i would realize that that's a possibility mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. i didn't and so as people shared it i took it as a opportunity and i kind of wanted to test a theory that I had, I said, okay, maybe people would be more likely to interact with the hard things if they were pretty. Hmm. If I make these conversations aesthetically pleasing and posted them on the internet, would more people be likely to engage and do the work that's required to transform society for, hmm. for the good? And so I used Black History Month the very next month to test that theory. And wow, <laughs> I was absolutely correct. Because I I made posts talking about why it's harmful to say that you don't see color and why we shouldn't be touching Black women's hair and what's a microaggression and just kind of playing with these basic topics. And it took off. I think I reached maybe 10K at the end of Black History Month. Wow. So that's in like a a month and a half. You go from 700 to 10,000. Yes, absolutely. And you think that's wild. (laughs) Right. After that, we started witnessing the Black Lives Matter conversation take center stage in America yet again, right? And so people are again listening as we witness Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd. And I made one illustration that talked about Ahmaud Arbery, and I used a quote by Kamala Harris, and she said, exercising while Black should not be a death sentence. And I just drew her words and posted it, and it was the first piece of art to go viral. And then within that next week or so, I think it, within one week, I saw 300,000 people join my Instagram. Okay. You, okay. You yes. said this in the forum and I, yes. I, it, didn't, it didn't hit me until <laughs> the next person was talking. And I said, wait a minute. Like, I remember I was like, wow. But then it didn't hit me. Because uh, I right. was thinking about, okay, they're going to come to me with a question soon. Yes. <laughs> so it didn't hit me until... I said, wait a second, 300,000 in a week? In a week, yes. What is that even even like on your notifications? Because I think that's just something that I'm curious of. (laughs) A lot of us, we can understand like, oh, okay, more people are watching. Yes. The constant ping, the constant, I mean, you probably had to cut them notifications off at some point. (laughs) Like it was just constantly going, constantly being shared. That's a lot in a short period of time. Absolutely. I've never been a big fan of social media notifications, so they weren't even really on. But when you get into the app, it's like message requests. There's absolutely no way you can read all of them. They're gone. And and when you check your actual notification, you know, when it tells you the last time somebody liked your photo, Mm -hmm. that time would say two seconds ago, three seconds ago. 
and it would just, it would just continue. Like I would never see a notification that said five minutes ago because it was always just seconds, seconds, people mm. consistently interacting with the content. And then you have celebrities like sharing the stuff. And it was blowing my mind because in my head, I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is so simple. But I think the beauty of it all and what opportunity I think I was able to lean into was taking these really complex ideas and not dumbing them down or even necessarily simplifying them, Mm -hmm. but translating it into a format that made it more digestible and easier to understand for the everyday person. Because in my mind, I believe, and I made an illustration about this, but the real world, in the real world, I mean, the real work starts in your heart and in your home. Mm -hmm. I really feel like you have to have that internal reckoning within yourself about your role, your complicity in racism, in systems of oppression, in internalized anti-Blackness, whatever that looks like for you, you've got to sort that out internally and then turn around and sort your family out. Have those conversations Mm -hmm. and change the tide within your own sphere of influence. Mm -hmm. And it's not until we're doing that, that the real work will have weight. And we have like herds and masses of people who are content who are not content with living life the way they were, but want to transform and become people who are actively anti-racist. And so I set up camp right there in the business of the heart and the home and continued to make art that spoke to that heart change and those hard conversations because I saw that it was making an impact. And so I wanted to just stay there. Wow. So now you're at, you know, close to a half a million, basically a half a million followers on IG. And there's another dynamic, especially for Black people on social media and really in any work that we do. Mm-hmm. There's something that obviously, you know, Toni Morrison and, and y'all know I quote Toni Morrison all the time, but it's this idea of the white gaze. And you're not just speaking to, obviously, you're not just speaking to Black people or Black mm-hmm. Christians or the Black mm-hmm. community. Right. You're also speaking very prominently to white people. Yes. And as you're navigating this, there's this spike, and we experienced this here at The Witness, where all of a sudden our donations just started pinging. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden our followers just doubled. And all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden, you know, people started down their mass download of the podcast. Mm-hmm. And so there's this consumption. But just because there's a moment or a peak of consumption doesn't mean that people are committed to the real work. Right. And it doesn't mean that they're going to stay consuming. Right. And so talk about what was it like once the moment passed? Because you still have a massive platform and that's right. never going to change. But but what was it like once the moment passed? Did you see that there were people who stayed engaging with the content? Was the de- did the demographics change? What happened after that momentary spike based upon unfortunate Black death? Right. Yeah. So I definitely experienced that roller coaster ride of one minute you care, the next minute you don't. And you know, I don't necessarily feel like the way I summed it up is generally how everybody felt, but that is how it felt as I was experiencing it. You know, is it me asking myself, do you guys just not care anymore? And so there was a time where for me, actually, I think I experienced this differently because the nature of the content that I produce 
is meant to be like a guide for people to use alongside their anti-racism work. Uh, so as they're processing what's happening in the news, I'll have an infographic that's like how to navigate race conversations. So the the content that I was creating happened to be evergreen, right? And so whenever something new would happen in the news or ev- ever something tragic would take place, people would flock to those resources and share them like wildfire. Mm-hmm. But then there would be those moments like when nothing is happening in the news where people will kind of fall off. And for me, I did not feel like really playing that game. Honestly, there came a point where I experienced a lot of burnout from going too hard, too fast for too long. And I was just, I I resolved actually at the end of last year to never work that hard again, because Mm -hmm. I really felt like instead of, I never wanted to make the mistake of wanting to just feed the beast of overconsumption and just consistently put out content for the sake of putting it out. I wanted to make meaningful work that helped. And I did not want to aid in the performative activism that was so like sweeping the internet. And so one thing that I added to what I was doing was very clear action steps to whatever I was posting because I wanted to help people take the work offline. Mm -hmm. And so that change, I mean, I was doing that mostly throughout that year, but Mm -hmm. being super intentional about that helped people to stay consistently engaged because I was giving them real world application to the problem. But if you're a business that's not, or an organization that's not consistently speaking to racism, which is, like I said, on the forefront of our nation's mind right now, it's definitely huge ebbs and huge flows in your engagement and your, and people interacting with your work. And I think that that was honestly a very discouraging byproduct of all of that excitement because when it's not consistent, it ends up really hurting a lot of brands and a lot of businesses. And so, yeah. yeah. Talk a little bit about that because you, you mentioned in the forum that we were in that you, you know, there were, there were black creatives and artists and illustrators that were building business models based upon the audience spike that they had received. Yes. And so when there's a lack of engagement, it, it throws off the model, right? So it's a positive thing you think, but just because you have a bunch of followers doesn't mean you have the the you know e- equal engagement that you need to be able to sustain yourself and to right. be able to make sure that you're getting compensated according to what you're worth. And I think a lot of people don't understand that because we're not creatives. A lot of people are not freelancers. Mm-hmm. So they don't understand the ebbs and the flows and how that can affect you personally and your compensation. Right. Exactly. When I think a lot of well-intentioned posting about follow these 10 black businesses or follow these 10 black influencers. I think a lot of that really played a huge factor into it because uh, people are being told, Hey, support black creatives, diversify your feed, you know, amplify black voices. And so they think by just following a bunch of black people that they don't know their work or have any type of connection with what they do or put out into the world, they thought that they would still be helping in a way by just being present. But we know we have very short attention spans as human beings. And if we're at one moment doing something just for the sake of doing it, later on, you'll probably find that you're not as engaged or as interested as you were in that one moment when you felt the urge to follow. And so like example, a black owned business that sells candles, they were posted on a follow these 10 black creatives 
And now you have all these people uh, following your candle business, but they did not actually want your candles. Let's be real. Mm. They didn't want to purchase what you were putting out there. So you're excited. You're buying inventory. You're super ready to feed the masses. And then everyone's unfollowing. Why? Because the act of following you was performative in nature from the beginning. Mm. Wow. And so that's why for me, even in my work, I'll be like, hey, take these action steps, but it will never be like, do this very specific thing that I'm telling all of you to do without knowing the nuances of your interests, who you are, who you, what you like. Because at the end of the day, you have to make this anti-racism journey personal or it will not stick. It's got to be a part of your everyday life and you have to make a decision. And there will be moments where you will need to disrupt your entire, <laughs> the, your entire way of living, mm. who you support, what you stand for. And that on the other side of the token, you also need to integrate it into the things that you enjoy, the, the, mm. the hobbies that you have, the businesses that you support. There's and, and you just have to make the decision not based on wanting to be performative, but on wanting to truly redistribute your funds and help and amplify. And so that was the balance that I think was really hard to strike last year. And a lot of businesses are still feeling the weight of it, but learning to navigate the new normal, you know? Yeah, that is so important. I think that really drives home the danger of performative allyship and how we as Black Christians and Black people need to be wary of giving easy outs and simple solutions, Yes, even mm-hmm. as we talk about racism and justice and equity and inclusion. And so as, as we talk about this, you know, you're really drawing out beauty and you're drawing out beauty and justice and how beauty can enhance the work of justice. What are some things that maybe the church or Christians have forgotten about beauty and about wonder and about art and how it can unlock, you know, because I mean, here at The Witness, I mean, you you know, we have idealists and, you know, ideators Mm -hmm. and thinkers and melancholics and (laughs) introverts Mm -hmm. and all the above, like that's who we are. Right. But, but there's, there's a missing element, I think of, of beauty. And that's something that we also, beauty and humor and all these things wonder, how does that shape someone's push for justice? What what is, what, what does beauty do to the psyche and the soul? There's a quote that I heard last year and it's so simple. It says the goal of the artist is to make the movement irresistible. And when I heard that, I it, it kind of, in a way, transformed the way I was viewing the work that I was doing because art is part of the work, of course, but it, it's not all of it, you know? And so I thought it was super cool that we were tasked with making the movement more attractive in a sense of making it aesthetically pleasing to the eye, not, to, like I said, to to dumb it down or water it down, but to say, Hey, we want more people involved in this. It's a tactic. It's a tool. We, this is very important. We will pull out all the stops to reel people in. And so for me, when I found that I was finding success and using art in this way, it just reminded me about how there's so much beauty in the unconventional and not being afraid to shake things up and try new things, especially I know you were mentioning your organization and other churches and people who uh, feel like they want to tap into that, but don't necessarily know how. I would say not to fear tapping into the unconventional, trying something new. Because as I started to research the effect that illustration was having on on humans, uh, 
I noticed that there was a link towards nostalgia, right? And so because mm. people equate illustrations and cartoons and animations to their childhood, when they interact with it, their guards are down. So they're not expecting to see a beautiful mm. piece of mm. art and, and say, oh, I'm about to learn about equity. No, they see it and they're like, huh, they're visually stimulated and more likely to interact with the work. And so I say, when you find something that works, don't necessarily count it out or say that might work for them or that might work for Danny, but that doesn't work in the scope of what I do. Don't be afraid to try what's unconventional and seek to affect people in in new ways because you'll find that people will just be more inclined and more driven to read your content or to listen to what you have to say if you try new things every once in a while. That's so good. Yeah, I think that's a good reminder for all of us. You know, how we present something is is oftentimes just as important as what we present. Yeah. And, you know, this has been a really, really encouraging, enlightening conversation. I think people are going to be, then their minds are going to be blown by the stories that you've told both in the beginning and, and here at the end. But mm-hmm. one more question I wanted to ask you is, you are, you know, you mentioned your age as a 25-year-old Black woman in Gen Z. Mm -hmm. And what I have seen is that the way in which Gen Z interacts, not just on social media, but with these topics of justice and equity, it's just totally different um, than how many of us as millennials or Gen X or boomers have done in the past. And so what should we understand about the passion that Gen Z has for justice and equity. Mm-hmm. And the reason I think this is so important to talk about is because for many of us as millennials, we took the baton. There was there was kind of a crossover between boomers. Boomers kind of skipped over Gen X, passed the baton to millennials, but passed the baton later than what millennials thought they should have, right? Just mm. skipped over Gen, Gen X, you know, kind of got in where they, they fit, you know, they just got to get in where they fit in, uh-huh. so to speak. But millennials, we're like, oh man, we feel like the baton was passed too late in church, in work, in justice, and whatever it may be. What should we understand about Gen Z? Because I don't think Gen Z is looking for us to pass the baton to y'all for anything. I think y'all are just taking, (laughs) y'all creating your own spaces, running your own races. And I think it's important for us to come alongside that, but also to platform that as much as we can. So what's the missing element or what are some things that we should understand about that passion that people in your age group have about justice? Right. So as a Black Christian, and I have predominantly... I have a lot of black friends who are also Christians. One thing that I noticed in our conversations, especially as a lot of us are trying to navigate what church and church culture even means to us now in a COVID time in 2021, I think what we're tired of and what we've grown to not enjoy is seeing the church especially dance around these hard topics Mm. for Mm. so long. I think... I don't want to say that they didn't want to talk about it because that's not entirely true, at least in the spaces that I found myself in. We'd have those panel discussions and we'd have those table talks, but we would be very rarely like getting into what we needed to get into. We would, I found myself often wondering why we were only scratching the surface. It's like, you guys want to have a conversation about racial reconciliation. We want to talk about white supremacy and anti-blackness. Like we want to go much deeper and we want it to be direct because 
we've just seen the effects. Last year was a prime example, the effects of kind of tiptoeing around it and being careful with it. It's like, there's a lot of unspoken things and a lot of things aren't being addressed. And so when it explodes on a large scale, like we saw last year with Black Lives Matter, then it's like, this is what we were trying to get at. Now we're having to address the stuff that we could have been talking about all along because we've always wanted to go there. Mm -hmm. And the world, from what I have found, I was never given a platform by the church. It's the world that gave me a platform. They have always been willing to go there. And we know that that happens to a different extent than it does in the church because of, you know, our calling. But at the same time, that's if if it's <laughs> if it goes too long with the church not wanting to go as deep as we need them to go, we might find that those conversations out in the world are more productive and beneficial um, in moving the needle mm. forward. And so I think that the biggest help from other generations for us is to be direct and have those hard topical conversations where we're not afraid to go deep. That's what I think. Wow. Yeah. There's so much more for us to unpack there. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. We'll definitely have to bring you back. I think we need to, you know, we're going to do some stuff later on in the year after we pass through this, this series talking about Gen Z and some of the things millennials have missed. I, one of one of my passions is to make sure that the millennial Gen Z relationship is not the same as it was with me and my parents. You know, that's one mm -hmm. of the things I want to do is have a healthier conversation about that. So we'll have to bring you back for that. Danny, you have been so gracious with your time and uh, we really appreciate you coming on Pastor Mike, but I can't let you go without tell, getting you or asking you to tell the people how they can support your work. Where can they follow you? support your work, add to your number of followers, expand your platform, all the above. Yes. Thank you so much. And before I say that, I do want to say, y'all, I have been the biggest Pass the Mic fan for years and years. So this is just the hugest oh, honor no. to even be on this platform. It's like a dream. So I just That's want to say kind. thank you. That's kind. That's kind. <laughs> thank kind. you for making this space. But yeah, you can find me anywhere at Oh Happy Danny. So that's O-H Happy Danny everywhere. And we've got prints and fun little things that you can buy and support if you want, or just follow along. That's cool too. Well, Danny, it's been our honor to have you. I think you're one of the leaders um, for the future of the church. So thank you so much for your work, for what you're doing. And you have big fans over here at Pastor Mike and The Witness, and we'll continue to support what you're doing. Ah, thank you so, so much. This episode is brought to you in part by the Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries podcast. Do you want to grow in your influence? Bow's episodes feature tips for leaders of any kind, from mentoring one woman to leading a ministry. Browse Bow's podcast at beyondordinarywomen.org.